the state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at an historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laugh as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. didn't say a word. He felt quite trembly. He knew something tremendous had taken place that morning. For a few brief moments, he had touched with the very tips of his fingers, the edge of a magic world. That's from George's Marvelous Medicine by the author Roald Dahl. Hi, my name's Ben. My name is Noel, and uh, what a weaver of dreams that Roald Dahl was. Yes, if you're like millions of children in the United States, the UK, and beyond, then you grew up reading books by Roald Dahl, stuff like not just George's Marvelous Medicine, but Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, George is a deep cut for me. Um, I've never read that one. My favorites growing up were Matilda, um, the Chocolate Factory books, including The Great Glass Elevator, which people kind of seem to forget about. They go they go up into space, and there's, mm-hmm. there's space aliens and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the Witches was super creepy. And uh, and the yeah. movie, yeah, the, the witches movie really freaked me out. It's fantastic! They pull their faces off and stuff. No, no, they all have wigs, and yeah. he's a mouse. <laughs> yeah, it's, no, it's a fun, it's a fun movie. But definitely, um, back when they made movies for kids that gave kids nightmares. So, yeah, yeah, and in the course of research for today's episode, one of the things I discovered is that there's this danger in young adult fiction without all of the trappings of banality you find in so much grown-up adult, full adult fiction, you know? And we see stuff that's so much more honest, visceral, and candidly frightening. Roald Dahl wrote some pretty dark stuff. Uh, and it's easy, I think, for maybe someone who just saw the newest adaptation of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, right? I think it's easy for them to say, oh, this is just sort of kooky. But as most of us know, the original one is frightening. 
Yeah, especially the there's no earthly way of knowing. In fact, uh, Marilyn Manson mm-hmm. sort of did a did a redo of that on one of his early records, um, showing how it kind of really worked on that absurdly creepy dark level. Um, but yeah, Dahl. I kind of look at him as almost like a Dickens type figure in terms of the characters and the absurdity and, and some of the, the satire that he did, but it was in fact for kids. And today we have, you know, this genre of young adult fiction that Ooh. tries to be a little bit more, um, dark and edgy, but these books were written for children. Right. Yeah. This isn't stuff like, uh, you know, Edward Gorey, for instance, has a, uh, child's book format, but is pretty much clearly for adults. Roald Dahl was writing for children, but he was doing much, much more than that. And the true life story of Roald Dahl is as interesting and strange, if not more interesting and strange, than some of the fictional stories he wrote, because it turned out that he lived during one of the most important, dangerous, magnificent, storied times in modern history. Absolutely. Right in the thick of World War II. And Dahl himself even described the mission of Churchill and the British government and the Royal Air Force, which he was a part of, as saving the world. I mean, he really looked at it that way. And that's not too far from the truth. (laughs) And at the time, um, the United States was not about that war. We were in a very isolationist period. Um, guys like Charles Lindbergh really pushed for this America first ideology. Um, why does that sound familiar? Um, but yeah, it was a big deal to get the United States on board the war effort to help fight the Nazis in what Dahl himself described as a battle against like good and evil in a <laughs> life or death situation that could literally result in the end of the world as it was known at that time. And so in today's episode, we're exploring one of the most fascinating things about Roald Dahl that you might not know, which is that he was not just a fighter ace. He was not just a military man. He was not just a fantastically prolific children's author. He was a spy. Not only a spy, like A super spy. Like the spy. Totally. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So let's give just a little bit of his background to get to the juicy once top secret stuff. Oh, and by the way, shout out to our super producer for today, uh, Ramsey Yunt. Thanks for coming, Ramsey. Yeah, much appreciated. Saving the day. Saving the day. Saving the show. So Casey is out with the flu, Mm -hmm. and we wish him a quick convalescence. Yes, yes. Uh, So please uh, feel free to write to Ramsey and Casey as well as us if you would like. Roll doll, though. Roll doll. Here's the thing. Born in September of 1916, and he lived until 1990. So he, he had a full life, and he's one of those guys, Noel, that when I read the biography or something, I feel like I just haven't done anything. I'm like, what a jerk. <laughs> I know, right? It's like, hey, I read, uh, I read a lot of books, I guess, but I, I haven't helped, uh, engineer clandestine geopolitics, right? I haven't shot people out of the sky yet. So, Rold was born in Wales of Norwegian extract. His parents were, uh, both from Norway, 
And he was named after the Norwegian explorer that we've mentioned in previous episodes here, Roald Amundsen. So that's R-O-A-L-D. Actually, his first language was Norwegian, which was startling to, to think of, you know. And like many kids, he went to a boarding school and some of the uh, – some of the experiences he had there definitely informed the way he approaches authority figures in his books. Oh, for sure. And there's actually a book he wrote, I think his only work of nonfiction as, as in his later career, uh, called Boy, where he talks about growing up and he talks about some really horrible experiences he had at that boarding school, mm. one of which included um, being caned by the headmaster or by some high yep. official uh, till he was bloody. Yeah, uh, Headmaster Joffrey Fisher, and you're correct, Boy Tales of Childhood was his almost an expose, you know, but so far in the past, uh, you'll always hear that thing, oh, it was a different time. That's how they disciplined them. But luckily for us and luckily for young readers around the world, he did survive that horrific boarding school experience and in 1934, when he finished school, he crossed the Atlantic on the RMS Nova Scotia and hiked through Newfoundland, and eventually he got a job. Yeah, and that was in September of 1939 when he started working for the Shell Oil Company in East Africa. Um, and it was at this time when England declared war on Germany. And like many, uh, you know, strapping youths his age, he decided to heed the call of war and go join his compatriots and serve his country. So he drove uh, from Deir es Salaam um, to Nairobi, and there was a Royal Air Force headquarters there. And um, that is where he signed up to become a fighter pilot. And just want to say up front, some of this information uh, we got from a fantastic book called The Irregulars, Roll Dahl and the British Spy Ring in Wartime Washington, which was written by a journalist, American journalist by the name of Jeanette Conant. Yes, it's a fantastic book. It's actually a fairly recent book, too. Mm -hmm. yep. And we can't recommend it enough. It's the kind of thing that uh, we would read for fun, which is always a beautiful thing. Thing to say, but one thing that is definitely not beautiful uh, would be the reality of life as an aircraftman in World War II, especially at this time. He was accepted, as Noel said, in Nairobi uh, for flight training with 16 other men, but only four of those, counting Roald Dahl, would survive the war. And it's interesting because they were so desperate for. Uh, pilots that even at six foot six, uh, a quite lanky beanpole of a man, mm -hmm. um, he was accepted. And in in uh, the Irregulars, um, it's described as he had to, quote, curl up into a fetal position with his knees tucked tightly under his chin in order to sit in the cockpit and his head stuck out above the windshield like some kind of cartoon character. But uh, because the pilots were so in demand, um, he was accepted. Did, and then he trained uh, very quickly, I think two months, um, doing test flights Shake in Kenya. Yeah. Exactly. And then next thing you know, he is thrust into the fray. Right. Uh, flying an obsolete craft, a uh, Gloucester Gladiator, the last biplane fighter used uh, by the Royal Air Force ever. And if you have ever flown in a 
by plane. Uh, it's a, it's a fantastic experience and it's terrifying to imagine having to conduct any sort of mission of war in one of those things. He almost died as it turns out, right? Uh, when he, again, uh, with this obsolete technology, and we're talking obsolete even in the late 1930s, uh, he almost died because he was flying and was low on fuel. Yeah, and he crash-landed in the desert in Egypt and was able to uh, pull himself from the wreckage. And from get, that fetal position. Yeah, from the wreckage and get far enough away quickly enough to avoid the uh, the subsequent explosion and the hail of machine gun fire <laughs> yep. that was set off by that blaze. Can you imagine just, like, trudging through? I think he, he was uh, picked up eventually by a patrol mm-hmm. and, and rescued. And – this dodging of a conflagration of machine gun fire is especially miraculous when you consider the piss poor condition he was in immediately. His skull was fractured, his nose was smashed. Most importantly, he was temporarily blind. So yeah. he had no idea what was going on. And he remained blind. For some time, actually, his face was reconstructed by a plastic surgeon and, you know, he sustained spinal damage, which caused him significant pain that would endure for the rest of his life. Yeah. And as it turned out, the Royal Air Force made an inquiry into the crash and they learned that the place he had been told to go was the wrong place. He wasn't even supposed to be flying that way. Can you imagine just main, just like with the technology they had at the time, Managing all of that, sending yeah. these, you know, squads and keeping things secret and having pe- people end up in the right place with these obsolete aircrafts. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think more people would be crashing in the desert in this situation, you know, given the circumstances. That's a really good point, too. Fast forward to, let's say, 1941 or so. Uh, he finally gets out of the hospital from this crash. And again, because of that desperation. He's back in the air. Yep. Yeah, he is, uh, he is rated fully fit for flying duties, uh, although we will find out later that's not exactly the case, unfortunately. So what happens next? Well, next he is sent on what basically amounted to a suicide mission. The Italians had German reinforcements and the British were outnumbered in protecting Greece. Dahl was sent as part of the 80 squadron to basically protect the island of Greece. And that was only one of two RAF squadrons to cover this entire region. And they were severely outnumbered. Severely outnumbered is a great way to put it. Uh, His first aerial combat occurs in the same year, in April, and he attacks uh, six other planes at once. Uh, They're Junkers, Ju-88s, he, these are bombers, right? He manages to German planes. Yeah, German planes. He manages to shoot one down, and later, the I think the next day it was like the fifteenth and the sixteenth. So he shot down one plane one day and another plane the day after. Which does that make him a fighting ace yet? No. By my standards, sure. <laughs> yeah, by our standards, yeah. for sure. <laughs> I'm not sure what the qualification for ace status was, mm-hmm. but uh, certainly a badass. Right. And his career as an airman continues. He is in a time and in a position that is notoriously dangerous, right? He is not only surviving, but arguably he's thriving. 
Yeah, it's pretty insane. In that um, campaign, uh, which ultimately the Germans totally ousted the Brits Mm -hmm. from Greece and won the day, around 13,000 British fighter pilots were killed, uh, wounded or uh, imprisoned. And as the Germans were advancing on Athens, Dahl was evacuated along with his folks to Egypt uh, and the squadron got back together. They put the band back together in Haifa. Uh, from Haifa, he continued uh, to fly. But in June, he began to get the worst, most debilitating headaches you could imagine, like beyond migraines. To the point where he actually blacked out a few times during flight. Uh, and then he got checked out and the medics told him it was probably because of altitude or like G's, the gravitational effects. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turned out that was not the case and it was just a holdover from that head injury he got um, during that fateful uh, crash back in Egypt, his first flight. Um, so he was... Um, discharged honorably. Yes, he was honorably discharged. He was originally hoping that as he as he recovered, he would be able to one day in the future become an instructor for newer pilots, newer air servicemen. But then something happened. A plot twist occurred. He had a meeting at a club with a very influential figure named Major Harold Balfour, who was serving as the Undersecretary of State for Air. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? 
Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonneville. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, I said El Camino <laughs> and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. It it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, You know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man, and funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Balfour was impressed. He was like, this guy is walking the walk. He's a fighter ace. At least Balfour thought he was an ace, right? So Balfour appoints Dahl, who is still a, a young cat, by the way, at this time. He, 24-ish? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? God. What are we doing with our lives? I don't know, man. We're, we're, we're doing this, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, here we are. Uh, so Balfour uh, gets Dahl a position as assistant air attache at the British Embassy in D.C., and this launches another series of travels and incredibly important meetings. Initially, Dahl is amazed by all the luxuries in North America, but 10 days in, almost two weeks in, uh, he hates it. He thinks his job is pointless. He doesn't understand, like, what he's doing. And while he's... It was meant to be like a public relations kind of a position, right? Yeah, and he wasn't feeling it at, at all. Well, he didn't want to do it in the first place. I mean, when Valfour right. uh, basically insisted that this is the job for you, um, Dahl is quoted as saying, oh, no, sir, please, sir, anything but that, sir. Uh, but Valfour was like, nope. And he made it an order and said, uh, according to uh, the Irregulars, that it was jolly important. <laughs> Yes. So he saw um, <laughs> uh, maybe through just the way Dahl kind of carried himself, mm-hmm. he was reported to be quite dashing and uh, good at, at talking to people and very you know ingratiating or whatever. So maybe you know, he saw him. OK, well, you can't fly. You were a good soldier. But now I think we can use you in America. Yes. And so Dahl kept his stiff upper lip. Sucked it in, and as as we say, he crossed the Atlantic, and he hated it. There's a quote that, that uh, there's a quote we found that's pretty funny. He notes 
how priorities had shifted. He said, I'd just come from the war. People were getting killed. I had been flying around, seeing horrible things. Now, almost instantly, I found myself in the middle of a pre-war cocktail party in America. Not to mention that back in London... I mean, they were getting bombed, right, by the Nazis. You know, it was, yeah. I mean, there was even a period where Dahl lost track of his family, you know, when he was away and he was told, well, they probably got bombed, you know, and he did eventually find them. But he came from, you know, this experience of everything is just bleak and uh, fallen crumbling infrastructure to being in DC where they had not yet declared war right. um, on the Japanese, you know, and Pearl Harbor is Ooh. what brought them into the fight. Um, But like we said earlier, there was this isolationist thing and we're like, well, we're here in D.C., you know, living it up with the swells. Yeah. Can you imagine someone saying, so, uh, Roald Dahl, you're from England, huh? How's your family? And he's like, I don't know. They might be dead. Well, have you tried the shrimp? It's, It's a really disconcerting thing in this time. In this sort of, if we're going Joseph Campbell with it, in this journey in the wilderness, in this dark night of the soul or whatever, uh, this is when Dahl meets another person that will change his life. An author named C.S. Forrester. C.S. Forrester had written this uh, very popular series of books featuring a character, uh, Horatio Hornblower, who was a, a navalman. And, you know, it was all these adventures and Dahl and his cohorts in the RAF would have been super familiar with these, you know, in their downtime uh, reading these books. And he was approached by this man who came directly to see him. And wanted to interview him about that crash in Egypt that we talked about earlier, where he, you know, went down and had to run away from the explosion and very heroic stuff, uh, because there was a newly established organization, uh, within the British government that was based in the United States, uh, called the British Information Services. And their job was kind of to help sway American sentiment towards supporting the war effort and aiding Britain, who had always been a huge ally of ours. But yet because of that isolationist position, uh, it wasn't something that our government was interested in getting involved in. And one way of doing that and swaying that opinion was with stories of heroism and these, you know, these moments like what happened to Dahl. And we'll say it, propaganda. Okay. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's propaganda. That doesn't mean it's not true. That just means it's, it's, it's a narrative with an end goal. It's persuasive writing. So Forrester has a deal where he's going to sort of ghostwrite is, is what they assumed. They assumed that it would be like Saturday evening post features fighter ace rolled doll as told to CS Forrester. You know, the way that a lot of politicians today don't actually write their own books. But turns out that after Forrester read Dahl's account, he thought, I don't have to change this. This guy is actually a bang-up writer. He's top-notch. Or uh, the bee's knees or aces or whatever people said at the time. The point is he was surprisingly good. And they published the article with the name Shot Down Over Libya. And that was sort of a more sensationalized title that was different from Dahl's original title, <laughs> which was the slightly more tongue-in-cheek, A Piece of Cake, yeah. uh, which is a term that fighter pilots used kind of jokingly to refer to, like, maneuvers. Ah, it's a piece of cake, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the fun thing about this is that it, it may be in an effort to impress this very famous writer who he looked up to, he fictionalized the hell out of his account. 
<laughs> yes, yes. That's the always the problem when somebody's reminiscing about their past events, isn't it? Uh, he was maybe a little more heroic. As you recall, friends and neighbors from earlier in the episode, he was not shot down, not in real life. Mm. He was not. He ran out of gas. <laughs> yeah, he ran out of gas. <laughs> but it worked. He was actually promoted and I think it has something to do with his success in this field. And this this particular article, a piece of cake shot down over Libya. Uh, they could have just combined it into one sentence, a piece of cake shot down over that Libya. That would have been good. would have been cool. Uh, this leads him to another significant meeting. He meets a fellow named William Stevenson. And this is where the super spy world kind of opens up for Dahl. Um, Stevenson – was the mastermind behind this secret ring, I guess, of intelligence agents Mm -hmm. called the British Security Coordination. Mm -hmm. Or BSC. This was a top-secret institution set up in New York City by MI6 in 1940 under the authorization of Churchill. MI6 being sort of the British equivalent of the CIA, yeah, yeah, or the OSS at the time. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're the, uh, they're the guys in the dark with the trench coats, right? Exactly. Or in the case of MI6, just fantastic tailored suits. Yeah, exactly. Or in the case <laughs> of Roald Dahl, the dashing young men in the tailored suits with the cocktails at the cocktail parties, betting influential heiresses and politicians. Yes, exactly. And that is betting, B-E-D-D-I-N-G. Let's be clear about that. Sir William Stevenson, uh, as as we noted, is the head of this organization that the United Kingdom's public and the U.S. public have no idea exists. Yeah. Uh, he was doing some things that were technically illegal, like he was passing, you know, like U.K. secrets to Roosevelt. He was passing U.S. secrets to the U.K. And he was also masterminding – in a very serious way, this push to alter the U.S. opinion, the average voter, given the um, the way the U.S. government works, the average voter had to support this idea. We had to be persuaded that it was somehow worth American lives to send people across the seas and spend enormous amounts of money to save other people in foreign lands, which today – Happens all the time, frankly. Absolutely. But I mean, that, it feels yeah. like a, there's a real parallel between the attitude of the government in our country right now and the way things were back then. And so what happens when Dahl and Stevenson meet? So what came of this meeting with Stevenson was Dahl being at first kind of recruited as a freelancer for the BSC. Um, and a lot of that had to do with his success at writing all of these Pieces that are ultimately propaganda pieces, including a piece about gremlins. He wrote a book or a short story about gremlins that got picked up by Disney and he had like personal meetings with Walt Disney and gremlins. If you, I mean, you know, like obviously the gremlins, the movie, but the gremlins were originally these little creatures that would mess with fighter pilots. And it was this lore, especially in, in Britain in the RAF that they would, uh, make their planes malfunction and they blamed it on gremlins and throw a wrench. Yeah. One great example of that lore in fiction 
uh, comes from the Twilight Zone in the famous episode, uh, Shatner. Yeah, with William Shatner, who sees a gremlin on the wing of a plane, although it is a commercial plane, which makes it creepy. Twilight Zone's a great show. I love it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so that was probably what got Stevenson's attention yeah. was Dahl's success. And he wrote a lot of different pieces that ended up in a lot of different places that were perceived as being successful propaganda. Um, and part of the BSC's mission was similar to what the, the British Information Service's mission was, was to turn that public opinion towards supporting the uh, United Kingdom in that war effort. But he only freelanced for like a handful of months before he was made a full-fledged member of this group known as the Baker Street Irregulars, which was <laughs> named after the uh, the spy ring that Sherlock Holmes kind of managed um, in those books by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And they were sort of street urchins that were sort of like, uh, if you're a Game of Thrones fan, his little birds that would right. like, you know, whisper things and, and find secrets and, and tell him so he could be on top of – he had eyes and ears everywhere. And that was what uh, Dahl was a part of. And he wasn't the only um, soon-to-be beloved author that was in this group, right? One of them was a little guy by the name of Ian Fleming. Right, the author of the famous James Bond series. Uh, But today, Ian Fleming is a little bit more well-known as a guy who was a spy. Roald Dahl doesn't get some of the credit that he deserves for this, uh, especially when you consider that they were living undercover at the time. Totally. Just like uh, CIA agents or CIA assets might have a job in an embassy as the IT guy, that actually does happen. Uh, he was uh, working as a public relations dude, a PR man. That was the front. But <laughs> when you when you hear some of the stuff we're about to tell you, yeah. um, I don't think you'd be too hard pressed to believe that James Bond may have been based on Dahl himself. That's that's how I see it. Uh, I really do. He's um, definitely part of it. I absolutely. completely agree. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire, part time, or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah. Um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool, I, yeah. I, I just remember, it was my dad's. I, I was a hand-me-down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car. And I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something, you know? I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac, yeah. Bonnevilles. Oh, 
right? It's- oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was, a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, <laughs> I said El Camino and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. It it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, You know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I love the way that uh, our author, uh, Lori L. Dove, writing for House of Works, describes Dahl's spy career. Did this sentence stick out to you? By all reports, he was both very good and very bad at it. (laughs) He was living extremes. I know because a big part of it was, you know, obviously keeping secrets. And in a biography uh, called Storyteller, um, Dahl's daughter actually sort of said, yeah, dad was a pretty bad gossip and and really didn't know when to keep his mouth shut. Um, But the part that he was really good at was ingratiating himself to powerful people. And that included, as we said earlier, powerful women uh, who he uh, let's just go ahead and say it. Seduced. Yeah, we we were talking about this off air. Uh, Dahl was a phenomenally talented Lothario, a ladies' man, and this really came in handy. This was a skill that could be applied to sway in the opinions of important people. But uh, Noel, I know there was a quote that you have been waiting to bring to the air. I got to do it. I got to do it. Um, in Storyteller, the authorized biography of Roll Dahl by Donald Sturrock. Mm-hmm. 2010. Um, 2010. He has a quote from one of Dahl's close friends, a man with a, a gloriously British name, Creekmore Fath, uh, who <laughs> described Dahl as being, quote, one of the biggest coxmen in Washington. I'm just going to leave that there. All one word, by the way. Yeah, all one word. Uh, and, you know, he his 
in the same way that, you know, and it's, it doesn't quite uh, hold up today in some of the James Bond movies, the way we see Bond manipulating women and, and being a bit of a rake. Right. Uh, that, that was dull. Yeah. So he had numerous affairs, uh, one with the heiress to the standard oil fortune. Uh, one with a congresswoman named Claire Booth Luce, who later became an ambassador. Uh, and this is just the beginning, but y- you have to wonder how effective of a spy he was, because he was swaying opinions, but then he was talking about it. So it was probably not a secret, or at least a very open secret, that he was sleeping around D.C. Oh, for sure. And he eventually became pals with a guy by the name of Charles Marsh, who was a Texan uh, newspaper tycoon um, who was a huge fan of Churchill and uh, a big proponent of allying with um, the U.K. in mm-hmm. support of the fight against Hitler. And this was the big goal, right? So he was probably able to kind of help sway that in some of the reporting in uh, Marsh's papers. Um, he also became close to a lot of other prominent American journalists and uh, several big-time U.S. officials, including the vice president, Henry Wallace, uh, who he played tennis with on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he also uh, – there, there's a quote from Marsh's daughter, Antoinette Marsh Haskell, that I, I love in a piece written uh, by Chris Irving over at The Telegraph. He quotes Antoinette Marsh Haskell as saying, Girls just fell at Rold's feet. I think he slept with everybody on the East and West Coast that was worth more than $50,000 a year. And uh, he also, by virtue of knowing these titans of industry and government, he was able to function as – uh, not just a propagandist, but a clandestine avenue of information, uh, of transmission of information. So he told, he told Stevenson and the other folks at the UK that he believed, for instance, the president, President Franklin Roosevelt was sleeping around with the crown princess of Norway who had been granted asylum in the U.S. He also, I think, gave first word to the U.K. that um, the U.S. was going to the moon. Yeah, he was telling people important things. I mean, he even worked his way up to becoming so cozy with Roosevelt himself that he was pretty regularly invited to vacation with the man at his Hyde Park estate in New York. Yes, and in 1944... He began experiencing back pain and underwent a series of treatments that kept him in traction for several months. While he was recovering, uh, President Roosevelt unfortunately passed away and Germany lost the war. Well, that part was fortunate. That's very fortunate. <laughs> but it's it's sad that Roosevelt passed away. Yeah. But yeah, Im- imagine being rolled doll and, and coming out uh, from this – Dreadful recovery, this hard-earned recovery, and then find and then learning that you know you won the war. I would say it was probably a little bittersweet, Ben. Um, but then you know it did give him the opportunity to leave that spy's life, that swashbuckling coxman life behind him. Yes, he settled down. He married Patricia Neal in 1953. Uh, their marriage lasted for 30 years. 
And this episode is not about the uh, subsequent career that Dalwood has, but as we, as we know, he became a, a giant of, of literature and, you know, beloved very much to this day. And not a lot of people know where, where a lot of that stuff came from. And Ben, do you like the term fabulist? Yeah. Isn't that a fun one? It's a good one. It's a, you know, I'm torn because fictionist was another one that we mm-hmm. discovered on the show that I really enjoyed, but fabulous as well. I would describe him as such. But basically, Dahl, even with that fictionalization of his, you know, war efforts and that plane crash in Egypt, he was kind of a professional liar, which is what a spy is. And ultimately, mm-hmm. What a good author is, right, is to tell a convincing lie. Mm-hmm. Or to find the truth of the human experience through fiction, which is a lie. I completely agree. And I also have to wonder, what would have happened had he not been in the hospital for those few months? Would he have continued? Because as we know, when he when he comes out of the hospital, he's lost sort of his taste for the the spy's life and he's ready to go home and settle down. He feels he served his country. But what if he continued? How would our image of James Bond have changed? I, I'd like to hear some fabulism from you folks. Let us know. And uh, while you're at it, we cannot recommend the book The Regulars enough. If you want to read something related, we'd also like to recommend Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare uh, by Giles Milton. And it's about the other front. Not just, This is about Churchill's clandestine activities to try to assassinate Hitler. And our pals Holly and Tracy over at Stuff You Missed in History Class actually just recently did a two-part episode on the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. So pop over and check that out and definitely pick up the book. And I would just like to end with a nice quote uh, from Dahl himself that I think ties a lot of this together. Quote, truth is far too precious a commodity to be used lightly. And with that, uh, huge thank you to our friend and super producer, Ramsey Yunt, our super producer, Casey Pegram. Uh, thanks to Alex Williams for composing our theme and sound cues. And thanks to Lori L. Dove for writing the article for How Stuff Works that we referred to uh, several times in this episode. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, we're we're on the usual internet places. You'll you'll see us there. Ridiculous history, or you can get us anywhere that you get your podcast. You already know that you're getting it from wherever you're going to get it. You don't need us to tell you. But most importantly, thanks to you for listening, and we really hope that you'll join us for the next episode of Ridiculous History. Have a great day, everyone. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes. You heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.